Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here, CEO of Peak Prosperity, and um, turns out vitamin D saved a lot of lives, or it could have, if only we'd used it. There's a new study out, we're gonna look at this because it's pretty definitive now, and I'll tell you why. Uh, mostly because <clears throat> they tried really, really hard to show that it didn't have an effect, and it still had an effect anyway. This is how science works in our modern era. So let's go there. Here's the paper that just came out. This made a bit of a splash recently. It's on the, get my drawing tool out here. <clears throat> the protective effects, or effect, should be effects I would bet, of vitamin D supplementation on COVID-19 related intensive care hospitalization and mortality, definitive evidence from meta-analysis and trial sequential analysis. A lot of names here. And um, so what did they do here? Well, and again, this came out just here in January of 2023. So what did they do? They went through a lot of, this is a review. So they went through a lot of other studies, pulled them together and did what's called a Cochrane analysis to get the best data out of them they can. Sometimes you can pool data from studies that otherwise didn't achieve statistical significance because they're too small, pool it and you can still find the signal in there. Sometimes that works, but we've seen how this has been used to also, in the case of IVM, duizabin 2, we see also how this has been used to find the opposite result from the one maybe they should have. So <clears throat> here, here's what they did, methods. They searched four databases in September of 2022 Two reviewers then screened all of these papers and they assessed them for risk of bias and all that other stuff. This is kind of interesting. Results, we identified 78 bibliographic citations. After the reviewer screening, only five RCTs were found suitable for our analysis. So they chucked out 73, like don't want those. So there's a, well, let's hope there wasn't any selection bias in this. Uh, they performed a meta-analysis, uh, the vitamin D administration results, this is the punchline here, in a decreased risk of death and ICU admission. Standardized mean difference here of uh, 0.49, so about half, half vitamin D administration. So this is administration, so this is different from looking at overall serum levels, which would be another thing we've presented that many times in the past. First mention of vitamin D on this show was March of 2020 because the signal was already there. So um, that is a signal related to serum levels. How much vitamin D did you already have in your bloodstream? The people who were below a certain threshold almost exclusively were the ones who ended up in the ICU. It was one of the strongest single factors I've seen in the data series. So that's why taking vitamin D has been a big part of my health program ever since. All right, so half, half, all right. And they, and they showed that, a quote here, since the pooling of the studies reached a definite sample size, the positive association is conclusive. It's pretty strong language. They don't usually use language this strong unless it's a really good finding. <clears throat> the positive association between vitamin D and lower mortality from COVID is conclusive. All right. Done, one, done in one. Let's keep going, this story gets even more fascinating. Um, <clears throat> the protective role of vitamin D in mortality risk showed that the Z curve was inside the alpha boundaries, fancy speak for, uh, yeah, indicating the positive results need further studies. Um, so, both, uh, it had a protective role in ICU hospitalization and also 
for death for both of those things. So carrying on, I think this was designed to fail and, and they still didn't. And here's why I think so, because they had 78 papers to work from. They chucked out almost all of them. And look at this. They're looking at the administration of vitamin E. So they're looking at patients who are already hospitalized. That was one study they liked. Another study they liked had patients who were already hospitalized. The third study they picked out was for patients who are already hospitalized. Another study they picked out was for patients already hospitalized. And the final study rounding it out was for patients already hospitalized. And they had various interventions, right? And so in this intervention, they gave 5,000 <laughs> units per day uh, vitamin D, only N of 36. Like this has got, it, this is such an important thing. There are people dying in hospitals and they run, managed to find thousands of patients for remdesivir, but for vitamin D, like, oh, we only could scare up 36. And guess what? When you have too few patients, I don't care how strong your signal is, it's still not statistically significant. So they get to say, oh, we had such high hopes for vitamin D, but it wasn't, it didn't offer statistically significant better effects. Even if it cut, death by half. If you sample size is too small, you still will have to use that statistical significant threshold and say it didn't achieve statistical significance. This is a game that's been played over and over again within the clinical trial setting and within the pharmaceutical industry to take things that you don't want to get a positive result for, you just underpower the trial. One of the oldest tricks in the books, we've talked about it endlessly, it's, it's something there. So. Here, um, intervention 21,280 uh, units there. So, okay, that, that's, that's better. Um, now, like this, uh, they did more here, days one, three, seven, not just a, you know, they gave it over and over again. Here was uh, 10,000 international units a day, and though of only just 41. See that? And a 41, and a 50. These are tiny numbers, right? Uh, the control was no vitamin D implementation. This one, N of 26. Here's just N of 44. These are You'll never, never find statistical significance in there. Very, very difficult. Um, 200,000 units. Okay, now they're given a big old WAP here with while of dose with 120 there and 120 in the control. So this, this one has more of a chance of popping a signal. Uh, and then down here, 21,600. That's a very odd number, but anyway, that's what they came up with. Again, N of 55, eh, 551. It's good. It's good. But um, so. I still think it was designed to fail. I think that, you know, there are uh, lots of other studies out there that first off, didn't require somebody to already be hospitalized. So once somebody's already in the hospital from a viral assault of some kind or a reaction of their body to a virus, you wanna kind of make sure that any interventions you're doing that have a protective effect through the functioning of your immune system You'd want to do those before they got to the hospital, before even the virus would land in them, before the virus went through its replication cycle. So this is a second trick is like, um, let's say we wanted to study the impact, the, the effect of airbags on car crashes, right? You and I, everybody here knows that airbags have a hugely protective effect. But what if, what if we ran a study? We're one of these people who are like, we're the NIH, and here's how the NIH would conduct an airbag study if they wanted to get a certain result. They would find a way to get to people who had just been in a car crash and then apply an airbag to them and conclude with very strong results that airbags do not save lives in the context of a car crash. That's how they would word it. But sequence, 
its sequence, right? So that's something that we know has been a, a big, big problem throughout all of this is, is seeing the extent to which we have really, really poor science being conducted in certain circumstances. In other circumstances where there's a new antiviral coming out, everybody knows that you have to give it within 48 hours of symptom onset, otherwise you get excluded from that trial because they wanna set the trial up to have the best possible chance of showing a positive outcome. In this case, we're looking at things where it was uh, only in hospitalized patients, So, but even with that, they ran through the whole thing and they found a strong result. So we have that result. It is now indisputable. So here we are. This is the official document that the California doctors have to follow now, according to that new uh, Senate law, that state law that came out there in California. But this was downloaded. You can see down there. I got this on 2-2-23. This is weeks after this paper came out. Vitamin D, it needs to be said, again, is exceedingly safe. It has a huge, giant, wide therapeutic window. You can give lots of it before you even get close to toxicity and the toxicity is kind of mild um, you get a hypercalcemia you get too much calcium floating around it, it, it's a thing but it's rare and it requires astonishingly high astronomically high doses to get to that level whereas the therapeutic index is way down here so you would think this is a no-brainer protects from icu admission protects from death wide therapeutic window cheap no-brainer somehow the official document, let's go there. Let's take a look. Here is the NIH. They still say, as of when I pulled this down on the 2nd of February, there is insufficient evidence to recommend either for or against the use of vitamin D for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. How long does it take a group of people to sit down and read a paper and go, wow, this is a no-brainer. This, this couldn't possibly be simpler or easier to divine. NIH? A little confused about the whole thing here. Haven't quite got there. Um, so when we look at uh, what they're using for their data here at the NIH, let me check this out. They say here, uh, this is from this same document here. This is what they said, no insufficient evidence. Here's what they cited to talk about their insufficient evidence. Again, just like the other thing we saw, the NIH drew upon, well, there's one paper they cite where they had already hospitalized people. They drew on another study here, which people had already been admitted to the hospital. Again, saying, gosh, it just didn't achieve statistical significance. Just didn't achieve statistical significance, right? But check this one out here. Um, a randomized open-label study conducted in France compared the effect of a high dose of vitamin D, 400,000 units to the standard dose of vitamin D, which is 50,000 units on mortality in 254 patients. They were either hospitalized or already in nursing facilities. And they said here, mortality was significantly different between the arms at 14 days with seven deaths among patients in the high dose arm and 14 deaths among patients in the standard dose arm. So even their own research that there's putting out there to say, we don't have enough evidence to either recommend for or against. It's like, well, which group would you rather be in? The one that had twice as much death in it or the one that had half as much death in it? Hmm, tough decision, right? Not. So this is really crazy that even in the NIH document here, they're citing this piece of paper right here, one of these studies, and they're saying, uh, yeah, we don't have any data to go with this. Again, if this was risky, you know, if vitamin D like had really high toxic sort of outcomes and it was very finicky to 
adjust and, you know, uh, lots of drug interactions you had to worry about, you know, certain disease conditions that it really exacerbated. It's not that. It's a wildly safe, very beneficial substance. And the NIH was like, we're confused. We're confused. By the way, this was the data that they had put out, you know, two years ago, year and a half ago or something. All right. Carrying on then. Um, So I went and I pulled that paper that they had that they said this was the French paper. And they said, yeah, not enough, not enough here to talk about. Um, Here's how many people died in the standard dose of vitamin D. And here's how many died in the high dose of vitamin D. And by the way, the standard dose was still 50,000 units. So a real control would have been giving nothing to anybody. So here they're even going, giving 50,000 units, trying to compare that to 400,000 units, still saw an effect. And by the way, would have been an even bigger effect if they hadn't given any at all, which would have been a true placebo-controlled trial. They didn't do that. This was a controlled trial, but only controlling it against an already pretty decent dose of vitamin D. And they still saw the signal and still concluded, eh, let's not recommend it. Now, how many reasons can we come up for why that might be? I can come up with plenty, but none of them are good. All right, and then uh, this was another really, really, really poor trial that the NIH, I won't even go through. You know what? I'm not even going to go through that. That one, that one was just so poor. It hurt me even assembling the slide and thinking it through. Forget that one. All right, <clears throat> now let's think about their pandemic mandates, uh, which the NIH was, was part of. Certainly we saw... Here, um, hundreds of people were arrested in Miami Beach because they were violating the COVID-19 protocols. We see here this woman was arrested by people in Tyvek suits, spacesuits there on the beach. She's even wearing a mask. Surfer fined $1,000 for ignoring coronavirus closure in Manhattan Beach. We saw Sydney lockdowns on and curfews on 2 million people. You could only leave your home for a specified unit of time, an hour a day, like you're in prison and that's your yard time to get a little walkabout, right? Or maybe, you know, go emergency to the, to the store or something. Every one of these things kept people away from fresh air, sunshine, human contact, making a living, all things that would have been required and part of not getting COVID, not having a bad outcome. So how is it possible that everything that was done managed to somehow, with a coin flip, always come up tails the whole time? You know, like got it wrong, got it wrong, got it wrong, got it wrong, got it wrong. Just completely got it wrong. So you could think, well, you know, fog of war, we didn't have data, right? We just, we just, we just didn't know. You know, how could you know? Nobody knew until now, 20, February 2023. Nobody could know that vitamin D actually worked until finally somebody reviewed the literature and looked at five studies of hospitalized patients and said, yeah, you know, there's kind of a signal here. Nobody could, oh, wait, I knew. And so did a lot of people. It was a no-brainer by spring of 2020. This is a one of my daily updates I was doing back then. This is back in, um, when's this? May 6th. So this is back in May. And we were seeing things like this. This is an actual screenshot of a slide I produced back in May of 2020 that we already found these sorts of studies were being done, but these are the ones they didn't include in this meta-analysis. But this was coronavirus severity of outcome, right? How bad was it? Look at this p-value, 0.001, highly statistically significant. And so if you had a really bad outcome, if you were deficient, you were below 30 nanograms per ml. And you had a lot of people with severe outcomes compared to people who had normal 
or sufficient ranges of vitamin D, that would be over 30 nanograms per ml. We had this data in March, April, May. This is, I presented it by May, but I think the study was done a month earlier. Now it's from May 5th. But there it is. There's the data, you know, there's the data. Oh, by the way, notice it comes from India, which struggled a whole lot less with COVID and COVID deaths than the United States did, the first world country compared to the so-called developing nation. But of course, if you saw the kits that they were handing out, say in Uttar Pradesh and other places, vitamin D was one of five components in those kits, right? They knew it, everybody knew it. The data is clear and it was really clear and obvious. So now we have to ask the obvious question, which is, what is the NIH up to? Like, what game are they playing? And I think you and I, we already know the answer to this. They're obviously not playing the game of let's do the right things in the right order so that we can save lives. Uh, that's just that's just the nature of it. And by the way, um, we know that vitamin D sufficiency is over 30 nanograms per ml. We get that, right? Under Under 20, it's not good. Uh, in fact, we have other data that shows that the that a hundred percent of the people, pretty much, that ended up in the ICU were in the deficient range. So it was very clear. It was very clear. And um, what's interesting is it takes a lot of vitamin D to create toxicity. My background is in toxicology through the pathology department at Duke University. So when we look at vitamin D toxicity, a clinical perspective, and this is. I believe coming to us, I don't think the date's on here, but this is pre-COVID. So this is before we got confused about these things. Look at this, serum 25 hydroxyvitamin D, D25OHD concentrations higher than 150 nanograms per ml. Oh my goodness, that's a lot. It would be so hard to get up there. Uh, then that would get you the hallmark of this um, vitamin D toxicity or VDT. Uh, and so... It it's so hard to get to 150 because it's not like you just take some and your blood serum goes up and up and up. It gets harder and harder and harder and harder to get higher. You have to keep giving more and more and more and it starts leveling out. But to get to 150 nanograms per ml, you either have some sort of a deficiency in your body's ability to clear it or you have some sort of a, a um, manufacturing defect where you're just making too much of it. One of those two things has to be true. Or you have to take a lot as a normal person without a defect and uh, to get there. It's just exceptionally hard to do it. Not impossible, but it's hard. Now, don't forget, we had this moment back here where Anthony Fauci came out and was talking about remdesivir. And this was an interview, like remdesivir had come out. It had some squirrely sort of a signal the, in, in the clinical trials. They just had come out with like an early peek at the data. It hadn't even gone through a preprint. It hadn't been reviewed. Nothing had happened. And Anthony Fauci came out and said, well, when you have a positive signal, we have an ethical duty to get it to people as fast as possible. Okay, let's say we do have an ethical duty to get things fast as possible once we have a positive signal. By the way, in remdesivir, they had to change the endpoints and then they had to scour through the data and they found this one little ridiculous little like corner of the data where it was nominally effective, right? And they broke every rule. You never change the endpoints midstream or ever. And you never scour through your data to find one little piece that works and ignore the parts that don't work. That, but that's what they did because we had an ethical duty. Okay, let's take that at face value. That means that this still being the state of the art at the NIH clinical treatment recommendations for COVID is a gross ethical violation. Everybody who serves on that committee 
They have names, by the way. They are all in gross ethical violation of their profession, but more importantly, as respected members of our society. There is no excuse at this point for not for still having that recommendation on vitamin D. There is insufficient evidence to recommend either for or against the use of vitamin D for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19 is something that could not be defended two years ago, but it certainly can't be defended today. Not with the latest data we've got. The question then would be, how long does it take for science? The speed of science is pretty quick sometimes. The speed of science is pretty darn slow the rest of the time. I'm, not, I'm, I'm starting to think maybe the speed of science isn't really a thing. I'm thinking it's more about the speed of profits for certain individuals, the speed of, I don't know what, plum committee assignments. It's something, but it's not science, and it's not ethical, and it's not humane. So that's the nature of that beast right now. By the way, <clears throat> I'm going to be going on to part two of this, which is not about vitamin D. This is about we have to extend this line of thinking that I've just brought you through, which is we cannot understand or explain or, or provide a rationale or rationalize what the NIH Treatment Committee has been up to, at least around vitamin D. I can do this in a number of other areas right now, and we have to conclude that there's some sort of an inside job, that, that something, is, um, <clears throat> something is pretty much off the rails at this point in time. And I want to tell you about it because I think if forewarned is forearmed, it, until you understand what the game is, it's very, very difficult not to be a pawn in that game. So if you want to play the game, you have to understand what the game is, which means you have to know the rules, which means you have to be willing to explore and understand what the parameters of the game are. So that's what we'll be doing in part two at Inside Job, and as well, we'll be doing that with our tribe because the second part of being uh, successful and, and uh, not falling victim to the scams and schemes that are out there is to surround yourself with other people who have a like mind and who are high quality. That's success in the next mm, coming years and decades. All right. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time. Love to hear what your comments are. Can't wait. Tell me what you think about this. And I want to know what your experience has been around vitamin D and in the medical system of late. Let me know. Can't wait to hear. Bye.